Today, we are wrapping up a series called Saving Power. Over the past several weeks, we have been looking at a group of nine stories found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9, that talk about moments when real people encounter Jesus and the supernatural power to heal, deliver, and restore people right where they were. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. And the same gospel that Paul wrote about is the same good news gospel that Jesus preached and demonstrated in power throughout his earthly ministry. Everyone who encountered Jesus, whether they were brought to him by somebody else, whether they sought him on their own, by their own choosing, or if he just, of his own mercy, went and pursued somebody and decided to go to them, they all experienced real change in their life. And these changes implied both an initial and instantaneous salvation in that moment, all while directing our expectation to a full salvation that Jesus would go on to secure for us through his work on the cross. So according to Matthew, Jesus is the Savior King who went throughout first century Palestine with authority and power to set wrong things right and to make the broken whole again. And we saw in the powerful teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that. We have also seen that in the past several weeks as we've looked at these various stories, which all brings us to today. You can go to the next slide. The title for today's message is Open. Our main passage today is Matthew 9, verses 32 through 35. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together today is that what defines faith is our openness to Jesus. What defines faith is our openness to Jesus. Really quick plug for the bulletin in case you didn't grab one on your way in. Uh, there's a summary sheet of the past uh, 10 messages, including today, that have the big ideas from each of those uh, with a, a passage reference there. And so if you'd like to go back and review those and kind of chew on those and, and think about what God was doing back then, uh, it's a little yellow sheet inserted into your bulletin, and I hope that encourages you in your walk. And so without further ado, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 9, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. If you don't have a physical Bible, that's okay. We have a digital one up here on the screen. Matthew 9, picking up in 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. 
Where am I at? Here we go, verse 34. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. The first observation I see in our passage is that you can go to the next slide. Jesus brings his kingdom into the everyday places of life. This final section about healings serves as sort of a hinge point in the Gospel of Matthew. For one thing, it deals with yet another miraculous deliverance from demonic influence in a person's life. And for another, verse 35 echoes something that was written earlier in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, 23, that summarized Jesus' traveling ministry into two basic categories. They were teaching and preaching about the kingdom of heaven, and the second is that he was healing every sickness and disease of the people who were brought to him. Now, it's interesting to note that in verse 35, it says that he went into all the towns and villages. As the Savior of the world come to redeem and restore what's been lost and broken, we might think, or I might think for my own self, that, you know, let's start at the capital. Let's start at whatever town has the most population to it so we can get the most mass exposure possible in the least amount of time for this powerful preaching and healing ministry. You know, we might want to put it on blast over all the news outlets, right? Or social media pages. We would print flyers. We might film commercials. We would get the word out that the king is here and he is freely giving experiences of his kingdom to all who believe. But, just like Jesus warned the blind men that we talked about last week, Jesus wasn't there to just become some overnight sensation superstar. Jesus was discipling his disciples. He was modeling for his disciples how to bring the kingdom into the everyday places of life. And so from that time, that he began his ministry to when he went to the cross, Jesus had only about three years to download all of his spiritual wisdom and insight and knowledge and practice to his followers so that they could become like him in character and vocation and life and to do what Jesus did. So Jesus started not in the capital, or most densely populated area, he started in obscure places all around the country. Sometimes, in our eagerness to get on with the task, to check something off our list, we look for the fastest and most quickest way to find success and achievement. But Jesus was not anxious, and he moved at the speed of relationships. And although his mission was ultimately to save the world through his work on the cross and to establish his kingdom in the hearts and lives of all those who believe, 
his method was to take a slower path of reaching those who were on the outskirts, on the margins of society, and teaching his disciples to do the same along the way. Now, we may not always understand Jesus' method, and that's okay. He's not asking our opinion or our input for it, for how the work gets done. But what Jesus is looking for are people who are willingly open to trusting his leadership to the places he chooses. The people and places that may not make the most sense to us in that moment, but are actually the situations that are going to shape us and prepare us for doing the same thing he did when he walked this earth. Jesus brought his kingdom into the everyday places of life, which means we can do the same. But how do we know when Jesus is calling us to do some certain thing or not? How do we establish some kind of trustworthy metric or path to take when it comes to living this life as a follower of Jesus? I'm glad you asked. There are a couple of things to consider. First, we can check our faith to make sure that we are taking a posture of being open to Jesus and his teaching and his leading. The second thing we can consider is that we can check it against Jesus' teaching and words that we find in the Bible. Third, we can check it against the life and witness of the things Jesus did. And fourth, we can check it with wise counsel from our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church to confirm the place we think Jesus is leading us. I think about you know, we're coming up on a year here. Uh, next week will be one whole year since I came out to uh, preach here for the first time just to get to meet you all, even though I'd made up my mind. And I think the pastor parish had a certain mind about it too, but the superintendent had other ideas. So he had me come out. And that was all to bring confirmation to this place that we thought God was calling Angie and I to bring our family. It, it wasn't the more densely populated parts of Portland like we were used to. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. We like our small town. Uh, but he brought us here to Florence. We'd never been to Florence before. And we were in a season of constantly checking, okay, is it in the word? Is it, we had friends, good friends of ours, where we would say, is this right? We think it's right, but we don't want to just trust in our feelings or what we perceive as what we might think is good. We want what God has for our family. And so we had that community around us. And that's what I enjoy so much about gathering together as brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because there is a wisdom that you have that I may not, and vice versa. And we get to support each other and help each other grow as followers of Jesus. Amen? Now, the question that I have going into our next point is, will we be open and trust God to lead us to those places? Now, the second thing I see in our passage is what Jesus did 
flowed from who he is. What Jesus did flowed from who he is. At the end of chapter 8, we saw Jesus deliver two demon-possessed men in the region of the Gadarenes. In that example, we saw that with authority and compassion, Jesus conquers evil and frees the oppressed because Jesus is the Savior who has come to deliver the world from the grip of the enemy and his demons. This was one of the activities that, Jesus, that really set Jesus apart as the deliverer. That's what he was anointed to do, to deliver the oppressed. We read about that in Luke chapter 4. Even those who could not call for help on their own. But unlike the encounter that we read about in chapter 8, the exchange of words between Jesus and the demons are not recorded in chapter 9, 32 through 33. All that we learn about this encounter is that the man was mute, he was brought to Jesus, Jesus drove out the demon, and the man was suddenly able to speak. Now, one of the purposes for omitting that interaction is to amplify the responses of the people to this healing, and we'll get to that in a moment. But if this section, if this part is like a capstone to the rest, everything we've covered ultimately is summarized by this moment that we've been covering for the past several weeks, what can we gather from this encounter between Jesus and the demon-oppressed man? And how might we apply that today? So in order to answer those two questions, I have a list of other more basic questions to walk us through it. The first thing to consider is what did Jesus do? He delivered the demon-oppressed man. Okay, next, why did he do it? Well, from what we've learned before, it's both because he, this man wasn't able to ask for help on his own, so Jesus had compassion on him, and because of his authority as God and as the Messiah, Jesus was able to drive out the demon with his power and authority. Further than just that, this, also, this encounter also fulfilled God's mission for the Messiah to free the oppressed. Instead of thinking about it like the common phrase that you might be familiar with, of you are what you do, Jesus modeled a different way of looking at the nature of work. You do what you do because of who you are, even if things may change. I know that for me, if I was somehow not the pastor in, you know, in this church or any other church, if I was selling appliance parts again, I would still be a pastor. That's just who I am. That's how God wired me. That's how God made me. And I'm still going to find relationships with other people to have, you know, that kind of pastor type relationship. That's just how God made me. He's made you a certain way and that's okay. Now, that all of that ultimately circles us back around to this place of identity, which brings us to the question, who was Jesus? According to Matthew, Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He also claims that Jesus was 
God with us, God in the flesh, both fully God and fully man. Jesus is uniquely qualified in his personhood to rescue, redeem, and restore humanity. That's why he would ultimately go on to lay down his life on the cross in our place, to pay the price for our sin once for all, to set us free, to bring us into the life that he has for each and every one of us. Jesus is the Savior, and he is the King of his kingdom, who has chosen to personally identify with his people in every single way. In summary, what Jesus did flowed from who he is. That's both how and why Jesus delivered the mute man from driving out that oppressive spirit that kept him from speaking. And that brings me to another question, so what? So what? What does that have to do with you and me this morning? What can we get from that? Well, because Jesus is the Savior King, come to set the captives free. First and foremost, if you and I are caught up in sin or bound up in shame and brokenness that sin ultimately produces in our lives, the good news that Jesus has for you and for me this morning is that you can be free. Not only that, Jesus wants you to be free. That's why he came. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Claim that freedom. Embrace that truth for your life. And find freedom in Jesus today. Another thing that it means is that as followers of Jesus seeking to be with Jesus, to become like him in life and character and to do what Jesus did, we can't literally be Jesus. We are not God. We are not the Messiah, even if we have some kind of savior-like complex, superhero kind of thing. We are not literally Jesus, but the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to heal and walk in authority can work in and through us and is with us and lives in our hearts by faith. The key metaphor that's used to describe the group of Jesus followers in the New Testament is that we are Quote, the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. He directs, he leads, he inspires, and we are all members that make up his body. No one person, no one part or function is more important than another. Even though I am the pastor here, I am no, technically no more important than you. Now, I may have a different role, and different responsibilities, but that's just, I, I'm a part of the body of Christ, just like you are a part of the body of Christ. All the parts work together to bring God glory and to continue serving the common good to bring about God's kingdom. Like the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth. Next slide. Here we go. 
1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. What Jesus did flowed from who he is, which means that since we are his followers, saved by grace through faith and filled with the Holy Spirit, that means that the Holy Spirit is able to minister saving power in and through our lives like Jesus did. What defines faith is our openness to Jesus. Are we open to Jesus, giving us victory over sin and the influence of the enemy? Are we open to the freedom that he wants to bring in and through us? The truth is that God and his kingdom get the glory as we are open to the Holy Spirit working through our lives. Because what the Holy Spirit does through us flows from who we are as people of the King. Not for our glory, but for his. This brings me to my third observation in our text. This is kind of the main thing of what's going on. You can go to the next slide. Our response indicates our relation to Jesus. Our response indicates our relation to Jesus. In our passage, and the ones that have all led to it, there are three different types of responses that happen as people relate with what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is as a person. The first is like the blind men that we read about last week who came to Jesus for healing. Jesus said, do you really believe that I'm able to do this? And their response was affirmative. Yes, Lord, we believe you are able to do this. They believed Jesus to be who they thought he was, and they also believed that he could do this thing. The second response that we find is from what we just read from the crowd, they were amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. And the third response comes from the Pharisees who make it clear they do not really know Jesus and they don't know how he's able to do these amazing miraculous things. So maybe we could characterize the three responses in this way. The first, like the blind men, they are open. They are open to Jesus and what Jesus wants to bring in and through their lives. The second, the crowd, their whole world is blown away. They're, it's just, wow, crazy by what Jesus has been doing and what he just did by delivering this man from a demon. And the third, like the Pharisees, it'd be safe to say at this point, any curiosity has been replaced with animosity, and they are clearly closed off to anything 
Jesus has to offer. So three responses, open, blown, and closed. Now for both the crowd and the Pharisees, none of them quite know what to do with Jesus. That's clear in the passage. The crowd, they rightly estimate that nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. We can read about in all of Scripture leading to this point. Nothing quite exactly like this moment has happened. They're blown away and at least are somewhat open. It kind of positions them in an openness and an intrigue to want to know more. But for the Pharisees, when Jesus doesn't fit into their neatly defined categories, they instantly identify Jesus with the devil. Their view is essentially, we don't understand you, so you must be evil. <laughs> How, nobody likes being categorized like that. Now, from what we can gather throughout all of these nine encounters that we've covered in Matthew 8 and 9, the common factor in every single case, one way or another, is faith. And what we see played out in the examples of the crowd and the Pharisees is that their response indicated their relation to Jesus. The crowd, they're blown away by Jesus. Most of them are favorably disposed towards Jesus doing what he's doing. And so their blown faith makes them open to seeing more of what this kingdom of heaven might be that Jesus is preaching and demonstrating to them. They indicate that they want to get closer to Jesus. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they've already made up their mind about Jesus and what they think is not good. They do not want Jesus or anything that he has to offer, and they seem to not want to be that close to Jesus unless it's to find a way to take him out. The crowd had faith with strings attached. The Pharisees have no faith in Jesus. And we know that because of all that we've seen throughout our series, what defines faith is our openness to Jesus. Rick McKinley, pastor of Imago Day Church in Portland, Oregon, he wrote in his book called A Kingdom Called Desire. You can go to the next slide. He had this to say, God is moving, and we may be missing it. We may be afraid of it because he moves in a way we're not used to, a way that is too reformed for our liking, or perhaps too charismatic for us, or in a way that causes too much social engagement. This all keeps us in a state of fear. Instead of fearing those whose doctrinal stripe is a different color, we should fear missing the movement of God because we're paying attention to the wrong conversation. We should fear spending our whole lives creating a fantasy football team that never really gets into the game. We should fear that we desire being right instead of desiring Jesus. Friends, Jesus was on the move bringing his kingdom into the there and then, back then. And today, Jesus is still on the move through the church, bringing his kingdom into the here and now as well. Are we open? Are we blown away like the crowd? hungry for more of what Jesus has to offer even if we don't even understand it? 
or are we closed off like the Pharisees? Because what appears to be happening in the name of Jesus doesn't fit into our neatly defined theology. If our response indicates our relation to Jesus and what defines our faith is our openness to Jesus, then I would simply ask you and me this morning, are we open? The truth is God wants to move in and through your life. He wants to move in a way that restores lives in our community. He wants to see broken homes made whole again, healed and restored. He wants to see people walking in freedom and victory in Jesus' name. He wants to see his kingdom established here in Florence as it is in heaven. Are we open? Let's pray.